On New Year's Day 1781, the Iron Bridge, spanning the Seven Gorge in Shropshire, was officially opened. This marked a seminal moment in the industrial history of Britain and of the world. For the first time, a group of visionary men had demonstrated that a 100-foot or 30-metre single-span bridge in cast iron could be built successfully, and it paved the way for its use in buildings, bridges and aqueducts in what came to be known as the Industrial Revolution. In this programme, we explore the history of the Iron Bridge and the people who conceived it, paid for its construction and used it to promote new business. We also hear how the bridge fell into disrepair and was almost demolished. Our guide on this journey is David Dehaan, the recently retired Senior Curator and Director of Learning at the Iron Bridge Gorge Museum Trust. The River Severn rises in the Welsh mountains, near Plinlimon. It goes due east and then ultimately turns and goes down south to Bristol and up to the sea. At the point at which it's still going due east, it cuts through the Ironbridge Gorge. And I'm standing outside the toll house of the Ironbridge and it means as I look ahead of me, the town of Ironbridge has grown on the bank which is the north bank, it therefore twinkles in the sunshine, facing due south. But the bank behind me, which is the south bank, the Bresley bank, is in the shade. And there's a local story that says on the one side is money side, and on the other side is sunny side. Money side being the south bank that's usually in the shade. And that's because most of the raw materials were there. There was no town of Iron Bridge when the bridge was built. It's grown simply because the bridge was here and the bridge is at a crossing point that was dramatic, beautiful, but also in one of the most industrialised places in the world at the time and in itself a fascinating area to visit. What we would now call pollution in the late 1700s they call power and excitement. This was an area of growth, of development. And the Iron Bridge is one of those most fabulous elements of excitement. In fact, it is the international symbol of the Industrial Revolution. The story of the Iron Bridge at Colbertdale is that of communications across a river that in summer was too low for the boats to go and in winter flowing too fast. So Businesses on each side had advantages from a better communication. On the south bank, Brosley, the ironmasters there. On the north bank, it's the Colbertdale Company. It was the Brosley businessmen who, in the 1770s, around 74-5, got together to encourage a bridge to be built. They got an architect, he produced a model, River Severn is a navigable waterway. That is to say, at some time of the year, ships would use it. In order to cross a navigable waterway, you required an Act of Parliament. If you wanted to charge tolls, those tolls had to be in the Act of Parliament. So this group of subscribers 
who'd raised a certain amount of money, arranged to get an Act of Parliament taken through, and that happened in March 1776. Once the Act exists, there's then a formal group of trustees who come together and pledge money to build the bridge. There are 13 of them. The major shareholder was Abraham Darby III, young man in his late 20s, and manager of the Kilbredale Works. The next biggest shareholder was John Wilkinson, a Brosley ironmaster, very clever, if somewhat ruthless businessman. And the shareholders raise money against the architect's estimate to the value of £3,150. The architect, Thomas Farnells Pritchard, works out that the bridge is going to cost £3,200, 11 shillings. And it's at this point that Abraham Darby says he'll pick up the difference in erection cost, thinking there's not much difference to pick up. In the event, it actually costs £3,000 to build. That's about three quarters of a million at today's prices. And that came entirely out of Abraham's own pocket. His account book still survives, and it's along with candles and hay for the horses and bed linen and the wages for the people building the bridge. And that's how we know it's a private job and what it costs. The Act of Parliament goes through, and they discuss with the architect the details. The architect is a Shrewsbury man. Pritchard is known for designing interiors of houses, mostly existing houses, so he modernises houses, and for church memorials and the like. But he had also built a bridge outside Ludlow in 1772. The design he proposed for the bridge that got the local people fascinated enough to want to do it is not what was built. But the Ludlow Bridge is the same shape, albeit smaller, than the bridge that was built. Pritchard died in December 1777, and the bridge didn't go up until July 1779. So actually pinning down exactly what he did and how is more difficult. But the clues are there that Pritchard is absolutely the man who designed it. There's one very rough sketch, and it doesn't help as much, So the detail of the joints and how it all fits together was down to the foreman pattern maker in the Colbertdale Works, which is a man called Thomas Gregory. And doubtless Abraham Darby, following through the need to get the designs detailed, must have worked with Thomas Gregory. So Gregory and Darby are the people who make it happen, but Pritchard is the designer. The shareholders are all local people, Two of them are the landowners on either side of the river. Not only do they own the land, but they own a ferry in the immediate vicinity, and therefore they had crossing rights at this point. But half the shareholders were Quakers. In the late 18th century, it was not uncommon for the first son of a family, a reasonably wealthy family, to go into the military. It was common for the second son to go into the church. However, Quakers worship wherever they feel they can communicate with God, which can be in the front room, in the back garden, it doesn't matter where. They don't have a church, they don't need a church. And so the idea of the member of their family going into the church was out. Quakers are also pacifists, and therefore the idea of a first son going to the military was also out. Quakers are egalitarian and took the 
Ten Commandments very seriously, one of which is thou shalt not swear. And for any job that was in the gift of the government, you were required to swear an oath of allegiance. And the Quakers took that so seriously they refused to swear that. And therefore they were denied access into jobs in all sorts of areas that other people could get into. So they have no jobs in government, in the law, in universities. They are kept out of jobs that are related to the military and the church. And so Quakers look to their own group to support each other, to find money. And as a result, we know of some big and important Quaker companies, the Bourneville Group, the Cadbury's, the Fry's and so on. But there are many more. These links, once we've understood them, can actually be identified on the toll board. The toll board outside the toll house shows the original toll prices, but there's a footnote on the toll board. That footnote was not in the Act of Parliament. That was being added slightly later, but it's a very revealing one because it's in code. It says, This bridge bring private property. Every officer or soldier, whether on duty or not, is liable to pay toll for passing over as well as any baggage wagon, mail coach, or the royal family. So here you can see the officers and soldiers are paying because the Quakers are pacifists, and the royal family are paying because the Quakers are egalitarian. In 1979, which was the bicentenary of the building of the bridge, the museum invited Prince Charles to come over, and we asked him to pay a halfpenny to the tollkeeper, a halfpenny is the price for every foot passenger going over the bridge, as it says on the toll board. And would you believe it, he hadn't got any money on him. We had to lend him a halfpenny of the 1770s, so he was paying with the correct coinage of the period, which he duly paid to Monica Jones. Monica was the widow of a tollkeeper working here in the 1920s. And recently I met her daughter, who says they still have that halfpenny and they were going to copy it for me so that I could put it on display and see it again. The same thing happened in 2003 when the Queen and Philip came over. By that time I was away on holiday, so I wasn't there to try and ask them for a halfpenny. So the next time you see them, between them, they owe me a halfpenny each. Now, actually, this is not fair because, in reality, the tolls were taken off the bridge in October 1950, so we should really have allowed them over free anyway. But it was nice to be able to ask them for money. The bridge was cast in September 1778, as it says in the local newspaper. On Saturday last was cast at Colebrookdale one half of the first rib of the Iron Bridge, before a great concourse of spectators, being 71 feet and upwards, and weighs above six tonnes. On the side of the bridge, it says this bridge was cast at Colbrookdale and erected in the year 1779. Until relatively recently, we believed that was one sentence, cast at Colbrookdale and erected in 1779, both things 1779. But the newspaper confirms that it was cast in 1778 and erected in 1779. Cast at Colbrookdale is an intriguing but slightly annoying bit of information. A mile and a half up the road, up a side valley, is what we now call Colbrookdale. And there is Abraham Darby's blast furnace. And the beams carry his name because he enlarged the furnace two years before the bridge. And it very clearly says Abraham Darby, 1777. Cast at Colbrookdale, there's the furnace. 
proof positive that the bridge was cast there. Wrong. The reality was that in the 1700s, the whole of the valley that nowadays we call the Ironbridge Gorge was known as Culbertdale. And any furnace within that valley would be called Culbertdale. Derby owned two immediately in the valley and one just on the hilltop, so there were several possibilities that qualify. Fortunately, an industrial spy, four years after the bridge went up, wrote in his diary. We went first to the foundry where the iron bridge was made. At this place, the Severn runs through a deep gorge. The first man we'd spoken to is the one who worked first on the iron bridge. He'd made a model of it in mahogany, which he showed us. That means it's not the furnace up the side valley in Colbertdale, but one on the riverbank, that's Bedlam Furnace. And Bedlam Furnace is only 500 yards downstream from the bridge, very logical place to cast the bridge from. And it's also the scene of the famous painting Colbertdale by Night, a red fiery furnace scene. Note the name, Colbertdale. So we have proof of where the bridge was cast, we know when it was cast. And so the wording on the side is not one sentence, the bridge was cast at Colbertdale and erected in the year 1779, but two separate bits of information which have gradually been unpicked and tell us a fuller story. The bridge opened on the 1st of January 1781. There was already a medieval bridge two miles upstream. There was also another bridge, a wooden bridge, that had just opened two miles downstream, and between the two there were three ferries. The difference is this one is high and above most of the flood levels, so when the others were threatened by high river levels or if the river was blocked with, say, ice or high waters, the ferries wouldn't work, the Iron Bridge continued as a safe crossing throughout. As a result of that, the shareholders got their money back, their outlay for the materials, in just 12 years. So it was an incredibly successful investment. Five years later, they got their money back all over again. And hand over fist, it went on paying right the way through up until about 1900, enough to always pay for any repairs and pay out dividends. This came to a halt when a new bridge was built a little further down the river that was free of tolls. And of course, if you were passing the area, that slight detour of maybe a quarter of a mile was fine. So why pay the toll here? And from that point on, the bridge began to struggle. The sides of the Seven Gorge are quite steep. They were formed back at the end of the last ice age when meltwater cut through the gorge. And basically, they're trying to find a more gentle angle of repose. And they're slipping gently towards the river on each side. And they've been doing this for 10,000 years. But the effect is that there was movement, particularly on the south bank, noticeable within four years of the bridge going up. There's some cracks appeared caused by this movement. And it meant that in 1801 they actually had to dismantle the big masonry abutment because it was unsafe and replace it with lightweight arches, initially timber arches and 20 years later iron arches. Those are the ones that survive to this day. View the famous Iron Bridge. One of its abutments of the western gave way some time ago. They are now taking it down to lay it on sounder foundation. The bridge itself, however, stands uninjured, and over the shattered abutment now half taken down, a temporary bridge of wood in continuation of the Iron Bridge. I was disappointed in Colebrookdale Iron Bridge. It has but little grandeur, 
and its black colour deprives it of a degree of elegance it would otherwise possess. It has lightness, and perhaps this very thing deprives it of grandeur. However, it is certainly a curiosity, and a work of great ingenuity. So, if you look at the bridge from either side, originally it would have been one single arch between two big masonry abutments, but nowadays there's abutments only on the one side and graceful iron arches on the other side. But the land is still moving. There are boreholes on each side with inclinometers so that you can read what's happening, you can read if the land is moving and at what level it's moving and what direction it's moving. And it's quite clear that just a little bit below the abutment level, below the springing at the foot of the arch, the land is moving on both sides. And in the last five years, it's moved two to three millimetres on both sides towards the centre of the river. Left to its own devices, the bridge could not cope with that. It would have collapsed. But fortunately, in 1972, a major restoration was done and a concrete slab was put between the two abutments, which now hold the two sides apart. Standing on the bridge today by the toll house and looking up towards the crown of the bridge, the church clock tower ahead of us, the Tontine Hotel just visible over the brow of the hill, you can see that the road ripples. You're actually seeing the effect of this land movement having buckled the side arches. They must have been built straight, but they certainly aren't anymore. If you cast your eye against the windows of the Tontine, you'll see that the crown of the bridge actually dips down on one side. It slopes gently, and I'm fairly sure the bridge was built that way and not that it has shifted and moved in the meantime. This is the first ever cast iron bridge in the world. There's no precedent, there's no prototype, and they learn as they go on. And some of the clues are evident when you're underneath on the towpath looking at these kind of things. The land buckled, the bridge became less strong than it was when first built, but continued to do a great job until around the 1920s. And then the resident engineer was concerned about the loading on the bridge at a time when lorries were getting big and heavy. And he felt that two lorries passing on the bridge at the same time would overload it and cause failure. So his recommendation was to put in pavements so in 1923, they put in five-foot-wide pavements, and that narrowed the otherwise 24-foot-wide bridge to just 14. And at that time, two lorries couldn't pass in a 14-foot-wide road. If you look at the tollboard, there's no mention of cars. All the things on the tollboard are about carriages, horses, carts, mules, cows, pigs, sheep, and people. But clearly, the bridge was open at a time when cars did cross it, and we do know that cars crossed it. I've never seen a photograph of one, so if anybody ever finds a photograph of a vehicle crossing the bridge, the museum would be overjoyed to see that. But what did they charge a car for crossing over? And the answer is, it relates to an Act of Parliament that I'm sure many people know about, and that's the Red Flag Act. Somebody had to walk in front of a vehicle in the very early days, and the Act allowed for locomotives to go on common roads. Locomotive just meant self-propelled vehicle. A locomotive on a common road was charged by weight. Under two tonnes, it was sixpence, and over two tonnes, a shilling. In 1932, on the 17th of May, an elephant crossed the bridge. 
very rare occurrence. And there is a photograph of this. In the photograph of the elephant crossing the bridge, this is very close to the toll house, there is no obvious handler. There must have been one, but actually it's not holding her. I say her because if it was a bull elephant, it would have required a handler. Bulls are much more aggressive than the cows, so fairly sure it's female. So I'm going to call her Nelly. But actually, we don't know. It was from Chapman's Circus. Chapman's London Zoo Circus was in the area for a week, and the elephant was brought down on Saturday with a banner over the side to promote the circus events, each one in a different location in the valley or in the immediate area over a week. So I'm guessing that they tried to tell the toll keeper that this elephant weighed under two tonnes so they could get away with sixpence. But it's fairly obvious that she was over two tonnes, so it should have been a shilling. The handler would have gone through free in the same way as if you take over a horse and cart or a horse and carriage, the driver is not charged an extra toll. So we've got a fixed price for, if you like, the vehicle and not an extra price for the handler with it. When I saw the photograph of Nelly crossing the Iron Bridge, a caption in a book said it was 1920s. Well, if you look carefully, the pavements are there. So we know it's after 1923. We also can see that she's crossing the bridge. And for that, it cannot be later than 1934. Because in June 1934, the bridge was closed to traffic. And big barriers were put up. And Nellie couldn't have got over or around the barrier. So we've limited it down. And that then pushed me towards the local newspaper and I went through all the local newspapers and finally found the ad for Chapman Circus. And that's how we know that Nellie came here on the 17th of May, 1932. Around that time, the trustees were concerned about the cost of looking after the bridge and they were looking to find a new owner. They were literally trying to get rid of it and they started checking with people who might take it on, including the National Trust, the slightly longer established Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, the very young Society of the History of Engineering called the Newcomen Society, a government department, and Imperial College. They even offered it to the Great Western Railway, who also said no thank you. But they were pursuing another avenue, and that is the possibility of the 1931 Act, which was for scheduling ancient monuments. And they succeeded in February 1934 of getting the bridge scheduled, which meant that now the bridge was protected and therefore they felt it was quite legitimate to offer the bridge to the local council because the council couldn't knock it down. They still have to preserve it as an ancient monument. In the event, the war came along and that didn't happen straight away, but it happened ultimately in 1950. So the tolls for vehicles came off in 1934, when the bridge was closed to traffic, but the tolls for pedestrians stayed right the way on until October 1950. If you look back at the toll board then, the prices on the toll board were valid from the day the bridge opened on the 1st of January 1781 to the day the tolls came off on the 12th of October 1950. They never changed. And the reason they didn't change is because they're in the Act of Parliament. And if you wanted to increase the prices, you had to go back to Parliament for a new Act. And nobody ever did. And you can still cross the odd bridge in the country and pay fourpence or sixpence, and that's why. This law has changed in the last 20 years, so nowadays if you cross a modern bridge, the Humber Bridge, the Seven Crossing, whatever, they can change 
the prices without going back to Parliament frequently, and they seem to. To find out how the iron bridge was constructed by men who had never built in cast iron before, listen to the companion West Midlands History podcast, The Building of the Iron Bridge, available at www.historywm.com forward slash podcasts or on iTunes. Today, the Iron Bridge Gorge, at the heart of this UNESCO World Heritage Site, offers 10 museums, providing visitors of all ages with unique access to the story of Britain's industrial history. Learn more at www.ironbridge.org.uk. Mm-hmm.